Listen up, pooplings. Dustin here. July marks the return of Listener Request Month, which will now be dubbed Hashtag Poopling Picks Month. All throughout the month of July, Jessica and I will be taking your requests for movies to discuss. All you have to do is send us a voicemail with your name, location, and movie request, along with why we should pick your movie. It could be a funny or touching anecdote about what the movie means to you, or you could try convincing us by appealing to our particular movie tastes. Be creative. All we ask is that you try to keep your message under 60 seconds. To send us your voicemail, visit vocaroo.com, that's V-O-C-A-R-O-O.com, and use the in-browser interface to record your message. Don't forget to introduce yourself and tell us where you're calling from. Once you've finished recording, click the link that says click here to save. Choose the email sharing option and send your voicemail to contact at popcornpoops.com. Submissions must be in by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, June 19th, 2016. We can't wait to hear from you. This episode of Popcorn Poops is brought to you by Audible.com. Please visit audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for a 30-day trial of their audiobook subscription service. When you sign up, you'll even receive a free audiobook that's yours to keep whether or not you continue with Audible after your trial has expired. That's audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops for your free audiobook. We are the Popcorn Poops. Welcome to Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet. My name is Dustin, and with me, as always, is my beautiful, if a little bit angry-looking wife, Jessica. (laughs) Why are you so angry-looking? I'm not angry-looking. You're giving me the angry eyes. Maybe we've... This isn't the first time that we did the intro. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what it is? You just... You want to get it over with? Is is that that what it is? Does that that portend the the opinions that we're going to hear later in the episode about the movie? About the movie? Yeah. No, not at all. Oh, just just general maybe my opinion of you ah ah yes of course well that's nothing new is it not really as always you can find us on our website at popcornpoops.com you can subscribe to us on itunes stitcher and google play and you can find us on uh social media on twitter at popcorn poops or individually at dusty cram cram i'm at j casper kramer you can also like us on facebook and follow us on instagram at popcorn poops where we're posting photos and fun things from uh, our everyday life lots of cats we're posting our our hashtag podcats Right, <laughs> the mascots, the official mascots of the Popcorn Poops podcast. So if you want to catch glimpses of uh, Kiki and May, the uh, dumbest and meanest cats, respectively, mm-hmm, that I've right. ever met in yeah. my entire life, then our Instagram account is is where you can do that. But also on our social media and on Instagram, you will get to play our weekly movie still identification game, where we post an obscure screenshot from a few future uh, episode of the show, and you can guess the movie. And if you do, we'll mention you on the show, including anything that you'd like to plug or mention. Uh, we also have a shop if you want to uh, support the show. There's some fun stuff on there. Recently added some some items, so if you want to go on there and get you a Popcorn Poops shirt or a Proud Poopling shirt, we have those. Uh, you can also donate to the show if, if giving just, you know, cold hard cash to perfect strangers is more your bag. That's also cool. Uh, and then, of course, you can follow us on our new Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash thepixelpoops and uh, just turn on notifications when you follow us. We don't have a schedule or any or anything like that so whenever we go live you'll want to know it and notifications is how you can do that and I know that you heard it at the top of the show but I just want to reiterate uh, July is hashtag poopling picks month and we do need your movie requests so if you'll go to our social media I've been posting it like crazy 
all over social media the instructions on how to submit your uh, your voicemail request for the show. This is the last episode that's going to go live before the deadline hits on Sunday. That's Father's Day, so call your dad. Um, but yeah, you, you're going to want to get those in, and we urge you to do that uh, as soon as possible so we can make our picks. But we would we would really appreciate that. Uh, this month we have a monthly theme as we always do, and this month's theme is hashtag Franchise Origins Month. So that means any franchise that has an installment coming out this summer, the first film in that franchise qualifies for for this month. And today we are tackling Steve Barron's 1990 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in honor of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows uh, hitting theaters a couple of weeks ago. I heard it was pretty good. I heard it was all right. Yeah. I heard it was fun. Looks fun. Okay. Didn't hate the first one. We'll talk about it. Uh, but yeah, if you would like to sync up this episode with the movie like you can do with all of our podcasts, but you don't have to. Just, just want to put that out there. Don't have to sync it up, but you can. It's a feature. Uh, you're going to want to go ahead and play the movie and then press pause as soon as the New Line Cinema vanity card fades to black. Now, when while you're finding that sync spot, I think Jessica has a review for us from Stitcher or iTunes. <gasps> no. Nope. No, she doesn't. And that makes me sad. Oh, now we have to listen to the lecture. Rolling a, rolling a turtle tear right here. Right down my scaly face. Scaly green face. You know, Pooplings, it's up to you to supply us with reviews on iTunes and or Stitcher. Yes, I said and. And or Stitcher. Every single week so that we can read them on the show. So if you haven't sub- if you haven't submitted a review for us on iTunes or Stitcher, please do that. It really helps the show. It helps our visibility. That's how the algorithms work on those crazy applications. Uh, and if you submit a review, we will read it on the show no matter what it is. We prefer honesty in your reviews, so tell us what you think of the show. But we also really like five stars. We do like five stars. It's, it's a balancing act. Like, my desire for honest reviews and five stars is it's kind of at at war with yeah. itself it's mm-hmm. this weird kind of internal struggle that i i deal with every day every, i mean really every day of my life so if you're ready i'm ready to start the show are you ready to start the I'm show i'm ready all right let's start the movie sinkers press play at the beep after the countdown ready three two one and we're off with the adolescent deformed Martial artist, amphibians. Yeah. Yep. That's okay, all. Dustin, an, go ahead. Tell that's us an alternate title. Tell us your history with this movie. Oh my goodness, my his, it's not just a history with this movie; it's a history with the franchise. I, I'm, I, I hesitate to call myself a child of the '80s, and I've said this before, but I very much did grow up on '80s media, um, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a big, big big part of that. Um, I never got into the comic books until I was older. Uh, I think like a lot of people my age did is they, they really saw the cartoon first. They saw these movies first and then maybe down the line, if they, if they continue to fly their geek flag, then at some point they were like, okay, I'm going to get into the comics. And then you discover that the comics are uh, pretty fun and uh, pretty dark, intentionally dark, kind of a send up of the Frank Miller, hmm. stark black and white, Sin City uh, kind of vibe. But they're, they're very much a parody. Okay. That's what the comics are. Um, they're, they're kind of over the top violent in a, the, the tongue is firmly planted in the cheek. Right. With, with those comics. Um, but then, of course, the comics kind of 
uh, cre- get, gained a life of their own mm-hmm. with the cartoons and then the franchise itself kind of started taking itself seriously. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this movie is very satirical. Uh, it is comedic, but I don't right. feel like it's a parody of anything. It doesn't feel quite like the comic books do, but the tone, like kind of the dark tone, the gritty, grungy, urban tone that the uh-huh. comic book set. I feel like this movie really gets across. But yeah, like I had the toys and all that shit. I was, you know, I was your average kid in 1990. I was four years old in 1990. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, very much a, a big, big fan of the of the Ninja Turtles. Do you have any history with the Ninja Turtles? A history with the Ninja Turtles. Whatsoever? Um, I mean, I, I saw this movie long, long before we met in high school. Um, I... I'm sure I I have a younger brother, so it could have been because of him that I saw the movie. Um, Maybe we went to go see it as as a family or something. Um, I can't imagine that where I was in my mindset as a kid that I would have asked to specifically go see this movie. I, as I say very frequently on the podcast, when we talk about our childhoods, um, I didn't watch a lot of TV when I was a kid. So, so I, I knew the Ninja Turtles show. I had seen some episodes of it. But I was it wasn't like a thing that I watched. But that wasn't because it was Ninja Turtles. It was just yeah. because I didn't really watch TV. So you can see here she uh, April O'Neil played by Judith Hogue works at WTRL, which might be TRL could be uh, a reference to the word turtle, maybe. Okay, yeah. Um, and it, it shows there that she works at, at Channel 3, but actually in the cartoon, I think in the cartoon, but maybe in the comic books as well, uh, at least in the in the cartoon, she was a reporter for Channel 6. So right off the bat, this movie is wildly unfaithful. I know. It's insane. And a, just a giant piece of shit. Right. Just. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I don't have a... I don't have a huge history with the Ninja Turtles, but I mean, I knew them when I was a kid and, and I, I didn't dislike them. Um, I, I believe we had some Ninja Turtles toys, which were probably my brothers. Um, but I played with them too. Uh, I don't know. And, and I definitely saw all the movies. I mean, I remember this one and then I remember the one very distinctly. The thing I remember about it was them putting ice cubes in donuts. Yes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze. Yeah. That is distinctly the part I remember is Tonka and Razar. They're babies. That's a choice quote from that film. Um, but that's about, I mean, honestly, that's about nothing negative, nothing like I was a girl, so I didn't like turtles. Like it wasn't like, I mean, I love turtles. Yeah. Um, but ninjas are uh, but yeah, I mean, I just didn't watch a lot of TV. So, and the, the new stuff I haven't, you've, you briefly mentioned it and said you, uh, you didn't mind it, that they were okay. I watched the first of the new Ninja Turtles movies and I was just kind of okay on it, I guess. The the first one of the new franchise, yeah. the, the Michael Bay produced. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned that at the top. I, I, I saw the first one. I haven't seen Out of the Shadows yet. I saw the first one expecting to hate it I didn't hate it as much as I expected to oh, hate it. Oh, you watched it too? Did we yeah, watch it together? Yeah, I don't think we watched it together, but I don't know. I've seen it, or okay. I've at least seen parts of it. I feel like I've seen all of it, though. Okay, the one where they're like going down the mountain with the snow, and there's the shredder at the end. It's not the animated one. There's a no, CG- I know it's not animated. 
There's a CG animated one that came out in like 2007 just called TMNT, which was okay. Um, was it all CG, the whole all movie? All CG. No, I haven't seen that. And then there's the, the new one that Michael Bay produced. And my opinion of that movie is it's not my movie. It's not Maybe f- maybe I didn't sit through all of it, but I've seen at least yeah. the opening and I mean, stuff. It's not for me, but I think that it's... Uh, this isn't a really popular opinion because people in my age group want to say, that movie's a piece of shit. It shits all over my childhood and whatever. That's, that's not true. It's fine. It's what it is. What it is, it's stupid. I remember <laughs> I mean, that fine. when I I think I think now, I think I'm remembering that I did not see all of it, but I definitely sat through the beginning, and it probably was that I just stopped watching it because I didn't sure. care. Well, right there at the top, we saw April O'Neil again, played by Judith Hogue, wearing a a yellow uh, raincoat, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, the closest we're going to get to the uh, comic book yellow jumpsuit and her bright red hair. Not bright red, orange red hair. And, yeah. Uh, in the comic books, I believe it was a green jumpsuit and brown hair, so they're kind of mixing the two. And I, as I understand it, they did try to go with the yellow jumpsuit uh, when they were in pre-production on this, and Judith Hogue did not did not want to have any part of that yellow fucking jumpsuit. I can't... I can't blame her. I can't really blame her either. It's not really something that you see TV news reporters wear uh, I don't know. I mean... Right, like I TV guess. news reporters today, they're they're rocking those yellow I jumpsuits. Know, but I do know that as a child, between uh, jumpsuits be- are coming back. Between by the way, Ariel and I've said this on the podcast before. Between Ariel from the Little Mermaid and uh, and April O'Neil from the Ninja Turtles cartoon, I grew a very healthy appreciation for uh, redheads <laughs> as a <laughs> as a young child. Yes, we've heard. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she, she didn't want any part of that, that terrible jumpsuit and I can't, can't really blame her. Um, so we did get the yellow rain jacket instead. Uh, at the top we do, we do get the setup that crime is on the rise in New York and there's a network of teenagers that are helping to steal goods, uh, with some ninjas involved. Ninja rather. Ninja is the plural of ninja. I want to just correct myself there so I don't have to add a correction segment in the next episode. Um, yeah, there's some weird writing in the news reporting. I, th- I feel uh-huh, like I yeah. feel like the the writing in this movie is f- structurally really n- more than fine, like good. Oh yeah, and and I'm sure we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the characterization and the uh, yeah. the plot points and stuff. I think I think everything is pretty well done writing wise. But yeah, the news reports are kind of strange. I mean, speaking of well done, just look at this fucking splinter oh puppet my right God, here. God, he looks so good. Unbelievable. Th- okay, th- so three puppeteers, including. Uh, a Kevin Clash, uh, Kevin Clash, who also plays the voice of Splinter here, who uh, went on to work on Sesame Street as the voice of Elmo, and then got in some trouble for uh, having a relationship with a, like a sixteen-year-old boy, something like that. Oh, something like that. Uh, Kevin Clash. That's oh dear. Fine. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. The 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 puppetry is great. Jim Henson's creature shop work in this movie is just fucking unbelievable oh yeah really really great there there are some weird references aren't there some weird references that this there are references all through this movie some some are strange some are strange like okay so first one first one off the bat is the bossa nova reference yeah right brazilian music 
Yeah. And then he says Derived Chevy. from Samba. And he says Chevy Nova to correct himself. This is, of course, Donatello, who's trying to be as cool as his brother, saying things like radical, tubular, outstanding. Outstanding? Outstanding. Excellent. Outstanding. <laughs> I don't know. Is that one? Maybe I'm, maybe I am Donatello after all. Um, but yeah, he, he says Bossa Nova. And they're like, what's, what? What? Wait, Bossa Nova? What's that? He says Chevy Nova, which is a pretty good joke. It, it is. And I'm not, I'm not like knocking it. I just think I'm going to talk about some literary references and stuff that are made in this movie that are kind of fucking weird. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, we're getting the first real characterization for Donatello here where he's talking about what Splinter just told them about that. He's not going to be around forever, which is one of the themes of this movie is um, growing up. You know, it, this is kind of a coming of age movie and him yeah, Donatello yeah. worrying about losing Splinter, who is ostensibly their father. Mm-hmm. It highlights a really important uh, realization in a young adult's life that they won't have their parents forever, and it's—I think—it's a central theme in this movie. And it's uh, it what's ultimate. It is what ultimately makes this kind of a coming-of-age movie with teenage in the title, which I feel is thematic consistency. Yeah, no, I think so. Like too. for a, for a movie that has such a ridiculous title, a title that was birthed from a desire to uh, to satirize or be a parody of uh, you know weird comic books in the '80s. Um, they managed to create some real thematic and character consistency with it, which I think is is pretty cool. Um, how did they pay for anything? Uh, like pizza. Well, they're ninjas, so they can steal money. I mean, really, like that's the only place I can go to is that they steal money. I don't understand how they have cash. This actor, that actor right there, who was playing the Domino's pizza delivery guy, is the body actor for Michelangelo, I believe. Uh, and I'm trying to find. Did his... pizza used to come not sliced? Uh, what's his name? My, oh, my, Michelin, Michelin Sisti. He played the pizza delivery man. They just sliced the pizza. Yes, they did. Did it used to come not sliced? No, that's the joke. They have to, It has to be not sliced for the joke to work for him to make the Ginsu knife joke and throw it up in the air and slice it up. And then Splinter says kids because that's an appropriate reaction uh, on, right instead of in uh, like, like Ma- magneto last week on x-men yeah. where he shoots rogue with a, a dart and, and she says, falls down and he's like young, young people, people trying to run away from their assailants what are they thinking um the cheese though was appropriate the oh. way the way the cheese pulled away from and the pizza in the movie and the cartoon there is no more even in the cartoon there is no more delicious looking pizza on the planet than mm-hmm. that melty ass cheese pizza yeah. in the cartoon I've never found it did you see what movie uh, Raphael went to see? Um, yeah, he went to go see Critters. Wow, that sounds familiar. It does. As 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 though we covered Critters on our podcast like three weeks and ago. And what's fantastic something. is he walks out of the movie. There's a poster for it. And by the way, I really, 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 really want that poster. <laughs> um, really? I really want that Critters poster. Um, but so, so he comes out of the theater and there's a poster there. And Raphael says... Oh, where do they come up with this stuff? It was originally supposed to not be Critters. There wasn't supposed to be a poster. We weren't supposed to know what he went to see necessarily, but he comes out of the theater saying, cool car, stupid costume, which is going to be a little, it was going to be a little dig at Batman, which had come out just the year before Oh, okay. Um, Batman probably being the reason that this movie was made at all. Because it was a mega hit, and they were like, what else we got? (laughs) And then this movie was made. Uh, This movie was actually produced... uh, 
uh, independently by Golden Harvest and Limelight uh, production companies, and then ultimately distributed by uh, uh, New Line Cinema. Um, of course, runs at the time by Robert Shea. We've talked about on the show before, brother of Lynn Shea, mm-hmm. unsung scream queen of the 1980s. Um, and it was, at the time of its release, the most successful independent film ever made. What movie was? This movie. What? Yes. This is what this is an independent film. Oh, this wow. was produced independently. I wasn't listening to you, so I'm surprised right now. Well, what's new? Uh, yeah, this was produced independently of any kind of dis- uh, distrib- dis- distributor or major studio assistance. Uh, so it was made by a couple of production companies, Limelight and Golden Harvest, Golden Harvest to be specific, and then they found distribution through New Line Cinema later. Um, but yeah, it made a fuck ton of money the year it came out. Um, you know, and it was released internationally. It did really well. Wow. No surprise. Um, okay. So going back, we're missing stuff I want to talk about. Let's talk about the fact that that pizza from Domino's cost them $13. Let's talk about pizza inflation. It doesn't exist. I disagree. I think that obviously the economy has inflated since 1990. Obviously it has. You can get from Domino's a large oh, three-topping pizza the actor, the for a- $12 before tax and The tax. actor in this taxi who, that just asked what the heck was that as Raphael rolls over his car is in fact Josh Pice, who plays the body and the voice of Raphael. Um, and he's the only actor in the movie who plays both the body and the voice of, huh. of his respective turtle. Uh Uh-huh, right. But anyway, back to pizza. Anyway, back to pizza inflation. Um, Yeah, so like Domino's now, you can go online and get a pizza for $11.99 before tax and tips. Okay. That pizza cost them $13. This was, what, like 26 years ago? Yes. I have a theory. I have a theory. What's your pizza theory? My pizza theory is we're going to start a YouTube show called Pizza Theory. (laughs) Um, I have a theory that in 1990, pizza and pizza delivery especially, and we're talking about New York City, so mm-hmm. maybe prices were a little bit higher then, uh, was still kind there, of... There, you mean? In New York then City? Then and there, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, pizza prices then and there uh, were a little bit higher... Be higher than normal food or fast food even because it was still kind of a luxury I get what you're food, saying food right wonder, it was like there was, a, it was it was an exotic food because pizza didn't really become popular it didn't really come to the United States and become really popular until I feel like the 70s or something so like up through the 80s pizza was just like oh it was it's kind of like sushi like sushi was the expensive like exotic thing that came out in the 80s in America that people were like holy shit you can eat sushi and yuppies ate a fuck ton of it and then people who I mean they still do yeah they still do but like sushi is a, a bit more um has proliferated, I would say, quite a bit more. No, I agree. In American culture than uh, it had in 1990 or, in th- or through the I, 80s. I get what you're saying. So it was so a novelty a, to yeah. have delivery pizza back thing. then. I'm trying to remember like how much. I think they say the price in Home Alone when they order all the pizzas, and I'm trying to remember like how much that was. But it was a fuck ton of pizzas. It was a that bunch of ordered. fucking pizzas. Yeah. But but anyways, though, yeah. So so they order pizza in ET too. 
I don't remember if they say the price. Anyway, I'm sure you could do some pizza sure. history and you could look into what pizza cost back then. But, but I just think it's interesting that, you know, everything else in the universe costs an ungodly amount more now uh, because of inflation. But pizza, pizza surprisingly, isn't that much more expensive. Unless you're in Japan. Um, because we did pay oh typically $30, $40 well, for a single pizza carry out. We managed to avoid, okay, we managed to avoid actually paying that price though. We, what are you talking about? Our tab at Pizza Hut would be at least 30 bucks. No, no, no. But I would always, we would always manage to keep it under 30, around 20 something because we would always get like a side thing too. But what we would do, and here's a tip for anyone who's living in Japan and you want a cheaper pizza from like a Pizza Hut or a Domino's or something like that, uh, at least at Pizza Hut, they have a thing called a basic pizza. And that's what you call it is a basic pizza. You order the basic pizza pizza and you have the toppings that you want added to it. Don't order off of their menu. If you order off their menu, you're going to get something that's got mayonnaise and corn and octopus and whatever the hell, you know, else. And it's going to cost 35 or 40 bucks. Swear to God, it is. And in, in their large pizza is the size of like our small medium pizza. Yes, that's true. So if you want a de- reasonably priced pizza at Pizza Hut, order the basic pizza, add the few things that you want on it, and it'll be for one pizza. And we would always get two smaller pizzas uh, because we have different pizza tastes and... And they're really small pizzas. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, But uh, yeah, one pizza will run you probably about 15, 20 bucks if you do it that way. It's expensive. That's a tip for living in Japan. I'm sure lots of our listeners need that tip. (laughs) I'm sure so many. We got so (laughs) many Japanese listeners. Um, Okay, so... Uh, we've got uh, a couple of other actors of note in this movie. Um, actually, one we, we didn't say anything about... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. And oh my I God, sw- is that the camera? I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I swear to God, I've, I've tried to figure this out. Elias Coteus, I think is how you pronounce it. Who are you talking about? The guy who plays Casey Jones. Oh, okay. A wonderful actor. A, a treasure of an actor. And every performance that I've ever seen him in, every every role, he makes it look absolutely effortless. And mm-hmm. he's great in this movie. He's great in everything yeah, I he think does. So. Um, but Casey Jones is played by an actor who's been around in, for years uh, named, I think, Elias Coteus. Now, I have uh, a Greek friend, and Coteus uh, is a Greek name. And I asked my Greek friend to pronounce Elias Coteus' name, and that's how he pronounced it was Elias Coteus. But... I've never managed to find an interview where someone said Elias Coteus' name, so I cannot confirm that that's actually how you say it. There are pronunciation guides on YouTube that say his name is Elias. And also, in Japanese, Japanese, uh, the Japanese katakana syllabary language, uh, or syllabic language, mm-hmm. um, is a good way to kind of get a base understanding of how certain things are pronounced in other languages if you don't if you just don't know and in Japan uh, Elias Koteas's name is is pronounced Elias Kotiz right mm. so i don't know if it's Elias Koteas or Elias Kotiz and it's also possible that it's Elias because that's what a pronunciation guide says on YouTube. And I think I found a Woody Harrelson interview where he refers to to him as Elias. I think this is too much information about how to pronounce his name. I'm saying that to say this, Mr. Mr. K, Koteas, if you're listening, and I know you're not, 
<laughs> Please let us know how to pronounce your name because I've wondered my whole fucking life. Um, so, so they talk about, do you remember when, I hope you remember because it was like 30 seconds ago, when Raphael and, and uh, Casey are fighting? Yes, I remember. Okay. And right after he says, uh, class is pain 101, your instructor, instructor's Casey Jones. Classic line. Wonderful line. Um, yes. Remember. Uh, so after that, he says something about a bat, a Jose. Jose Conseco Conseco bat. bat? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Conseco? He tries to hit him with a baseball bat, and Rafael identifies it as a Jose Canseco bat. Tell me you didn't pay money for this. And at the time, uh, Canseco was a baseball player. He mm-hmm. was a he was a designated pitcher um, and uh, or a designated hitter um, and a right fielder, I think. And at the time, he had never played for the Yankees, the New York team. Um, and he eventually did in 2000. So I think maybe it's because. Uh, Casey Jones had a baseball bat by a player that wasn't a Yankee. Wasn't a Yankee player. Okay. Well, I was just gonna. That may have been the meaning, or it could be that Conseco just he was a he was a really famous baseball player. It could be that he put his name on like uh, cheap products or something. Okay. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, contextualizing it to the future. Yes. Um, in 2005, Conseco admitted to steroids in his tell-all book Juiced Wild Times ran. At Roids, smash hits, and how baseball got big, which was a New York Times bestseller. Was <laughs> it? Um, uh, and in the book, he said eighty-five percent of major league players did steroids. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Yeah. And he named a bunch of other people. Yeah. And at first, everybody was like, no, we don't do steroids. And then a bunch of them well, started I mean, coming out, and they were like, yeah, actually, we if do you've, steroids. If you've ever wondered why baseball was like the biggest thing in the world in the 90s with you know huge stars like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds and all these guys breaking record after record after record, baseball was an exciting thing to watch. And then when they started cracking down on people using steroids, suddenly baseball became came really boring again. I wonder why. I wonder why no one gives a shit about baseball anymore. Because you don't have literal monsters running around on the fucking baseball field hitting the shit out of balls and whatnot. So that's maybe that's just a theory. That's just a theory. I think you just pissed off a every pizza theory. Every every baseball fan in the world. Right. Um, um, oh, and also another another. I can't talk tonight. I I have had full disclosure. I have had a couple of glasses of wine and a beer, so perhaps that's why I'm stuttering. Um, so so I was gonna talk about the uh, their little one liners all the time. Whoa, whiffer! Hadn't heard that one before. Yeah, whiffer is when you, a horse when you no whiff when you whiff. Oh, a ba- like a baseball bat when you don't hit the ball, it makes a whiff sound, so you whiff it. Okay. Well, the internet told me. I guess that would. Perhaps Perhaps be a different spelling of whiffer, maybe with or without an H, but um, a whiffer is also a horse, so it's like saying uh, "whoa, okay. Nelly." That has nothing to do with anything, no. Well, "whoa, whiffer" would be like "whoa." No. I mean, the internet no. said "whoa, whiffer" means no, no, no. Good work, though. <laughs> Excellent research work. That's that's real good. Um, the, these flashbacks right here. So we're, we're getting an origin story within a story that is not technically an origin story, which I appreciate for an early comic book movie. Uh, but for this flashback, uh, the director was going for a more retro look. So he decided to shoot these in Super 8. So all of this stuff, the reason it looks different and weird is because it was shot on Super 8 film. Um, and these scenes used some real turtles and then it's got these little mini puppets right here um yeah so they were uh they were actually pretty time consuming to shoot because they were all 
uh, these little puppets. So they were given to a second unit director by the name of Brian Henson to direct. So Brian Henson, welcome back to the show. Uh, you also, of course, you worked on uh, the Dark Crystal and, and Labyrinth and stuff, but you did direct a movie that we've covered, The Muppet Christmas Carol, and he also directed those flashback scenes for this movie. Um, I love the puppets and the real turtles mixed together in that scene. I do too. I do want to. I, I do have a question about Splinter's accent. He tells us that that he didn't uh, start transforming or he didn't become a mutant rat giant rat thing until after he came to New York, which makes me wonder how he has such a thick Japanese accent. Well, I can at least buy that since he was born and we know spent some time in Japan during his early rat years. It's harder for me to buy that some of the turtles have very strong New York City accents and some of them have um, very strong California accents. And some of them have very strong Corey Feldman (laughs) accents. Maybe, maybe... Corey Feldman's best role, maybe. Speak, speak of the devil, right? Speak of the green devil. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, I, I was talking about how this isn't an origin story, but it kind of has an origin story in it. I do appreciate that this is the first film in a comic book adaptation franchise, and it didn't feel the need to be an origin story. It just happens to have that. I think that, you know, we kind of got away from that, obviously, and and there was a need to make every time you reboot... I'm looking at you, Spider-Man. Every time you reboot a fucking franchise, you got to make another origin story. Like, we don't know how Superman became Superman, for fuck's sake. Um, Man, this last Spider-Man... <laughs> the amazing. Well, in the the thing was the amazing Spider Man. It was not. I remember. I remember when they came out and they were talking about they were gonna reboot it again. And I was just like, didn't we just fucking do that? Didn't we just fucking reboot Spider Man? And it just. It didn't and you were really... like, no, it's gonna be fine. It'll be fine. It looks really cool. The trailer's really cool. It's gonna be fine. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't give a fuck anymore. There, there I've are heard this story. There are... 30 million times. There are things about those movies that I think work fine, but overall they didn't do enough to set themselves apart to make themselves special. No, you have to you have to wait until you've had like a couple of decades in between your movie before you reboot it so that I mean because where we are as a society and stuff or is going to be or, totally different in 10 or 15 20 right. years. Or you do something really weird and off the wall. That's the only way that you can reboot it so soon, I think, is you have to do something really, really weird, really different. Yeah, this scene that we just saw of the turtles joking around with April uh, in her apartment doing impressions of, of you know, Cagney and, and Stallone and shit like that does the humor did not did not work for me at all. Like I get what they're going for. They're trying to build these relationships really fast, but th- that that was just a scene of pure cringe for me. No, it was it was really I'm, nothing. But um, but I do want to talk about the famously misquoted uh, Cagney line. Oh, okay. Go for so, it. So, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, yes, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, so the, the... You Dirty Rat. Yeah, the You Dirty Rat. So, it's famously misquoted from the 1932 pre-code gangster movie Taxi. Mm-hmm. Anything that's pre-code is fucking awesome, by the way. Um, <laughs> well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, well, but okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You, you get... I mean, it's not all awesome, but, but I think it's fantastic. Anyways, so Cagney is speaking to his brother's killer through a locked closet and says, come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door. Um, And then, of course, this quote led to him being famously misquoted as saying, you dirty rat, you killed my brother. 
So, yeah. So now you know. Right. Cool. Um, And can we go back a little bit to maybe the funniest thing in the movie? Oh, God. When so when when April gets mugged or whatever, jumped by the dudes. Yeah. Right. And and the guy says, I deliver a message. And he shows her his hand. And then he slaps her in the face. Shut it. (laughs) He says, shut it. I I would never condone the slapping of a woman. But if you're going to slap any human across the face, that's one great way to do it. That's a pretty fantastic way to do it. I come with a message and just slowly open your hand and slap. It was really funny. The the guy who did that actually uh, was Leif Tilden, who played plays the body of Donatello. All of the turtles, uh, body actors, right. costume actors have cameos in this movie and other places. So that's pretty neat. I mean, in, in, in April has some, uh, she does well in this movie, like as a strong female character, she fights back and stuff. She pulls oh, yeah. out, she pulls she's out fucking, that sigh and she, I yeah, mean, dude, she's I don't know why the fuck, fuck she's carrying around a sigh instead of just some pepper spray or something. If you're living well, in New York she city, found, but, well, she found, yeah, yeah. I, but no, I know. But I mean, like you've, I mean, if you find a machine gun on the ground, you don't carry it around with you for the next month. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about her boss, Charles, and his son, Danny, who we're, we are seeing. Um, I think this is the second time. Is this the second time that Charles has been in her house in the morning while yeah. she's getting ready for work? It must be because... What the because fuck? In the Do first they carpool? Scene, because in the first scene, um, Danny steals money from her wallet and he gives it back to her at the end of the movie. Right. So it's got to be her house that they're in in the first scene. Um, right. So, so yeah. But the, this is the second time he did How I don't, fucking I weird don't is know. that? I don't think they carpool. I think he just comes over. I understand why he has his son with him because he gives an excuse for it and he says he has to take his son to school or he also won't go. Also, want to note the, the, the strengthening of the themes there of fathers and sons in this right. movie with, uh, with those two characters. Teenage sons specifically. Teenage sons specifically. Um, so, so we understand why, like he's got his son with him, but I don't know why he's at her house as a reporter, not a TV reporter, but a newspaper reporter as a reporter. The idea of my editor, my boss showing up at my house is like the weirdest thing I can imagine. Super weird. All right. So this is, this is the, uh, I think famous scene of kids, in their bad kid haven where there's just arcades and drinking and smoking and gambling and skateboarding and what has this world come to with all of the hip hops and the rock bops and the Well, it's punk, like it's like the Power dickheads. Rangers movie. What? Right, it's like the evil evil lair where the bad guys seduce the teenagers to act ridiculous. In the Power in the Rangers? Power Rangers movie with Ivan Ooze. He and they have and all the kids at the end they're at like a train station or something. I don't know where oh, they are. Oh, okay. But they're all just like acting crazy and dancing oh, yeah. on tables. Okay. And oh look, it's doing Sam Rockwell. Naughty things. It's Sam Rockwell offering cigarettes to children. At least he has options, regular or, or menthol. menthol. That's right. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's it's fun to see him in this movie. He's. I did say that there were some name actors in this, and I would say that Sam Rockwell, out of everyone in this movie, went on to have by far the most successful career. Certainly more successful than Corey Feldman. Poor Corey Feldman. (laughs) Some days I feel bad for him. Um, We've got Master Tatsu here. Uh, We're about to... I think we just saw him. There he is. 
Um, Master Tatsu, who is kind of the number two or the number one in command under Shredder, played by Toshishiro Obata. Um, and this role was actually supposed to go to Professor Toru Tanaka. Do you remember Professor Toru Tanaka? He was a, he's an actor who's credited as Professor in <laughs> the movies he's in. He was in movies like, um, oh, Jesus, what's that movie called? Oh, Running Man. And he's also in a, in a movie that we've already covered called uh, House 2, The Second Story. And it's a good he's movie. A real big Japanese dude um, that likes to be credited as professor. Although I doubt he. Do you think he has a credential? Mm. You think he's a professor? You think he's tenure? University? He's tenure professor. Tenure, tenure track. T- tenure Tanaka. <laughs> it's his wrestling name, Tenure Tanaka. Uh, yeah, that that role was supposed to go to him. And now we're about to see the shredder for, I don't know if it's technically the first time. I think he does say something about get them, get the turtles or something like that. Um, But we do get to see the shredder here, who's played by James Saito, who is a Japanese American. And I just want you to imagine a world in which Japanese actors actually played Japanese characters and then look upon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in awe and wonderment because holy shit. This True. movie casts Japanese True. actors or Japanese American actors. True fact. As Japanese characters. And I get so fucking annoyed about that. So do Japanese people. Yeah, I'm sure. Why? 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 How hard is it? How hard is it to actually cast the nationality that you say you're going to cast? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but of course, Shredder is the... Uh, I mean, if you were in Europe or something and you were watching a movie and they, they had an American character and it was played by a Canadian, wouldn't you be pissed? Don't you think you'd be pissed? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, of course, this could very easily lead into a conversation about the whitewashing of, uh, of ethnic characters in American movies. Um, I mean, recently, Hollywood yeah. has been really bad about that. Right. Next year, we're going to have a Ghost in the Shell moving movie starring Lily White, Scarlett so Johansson. Stupid. Yup. What is the point? <laughs> I mean, we should be going in the opposite direction. Because only white people see movies. Didn't you know that? Oh my God. Uh, so of course, Shredder is um, very much uh, inspired by uh, Darth Vader. You can see that in his costume, which I think is interesting because I feel like you see the Darth Vader influence in his costume, and then Darth Vader's influence was obviously like samurai, you know, samurai armor from from you know ancient feudal Japan, mm. and because this is a character who's kind of aping that as well, it's kind of come full circle where, you know. Uh, samurai armor inspires Darth Vader. Darth Vader inspires Shredder, who's kind of supposed to be samurai anyway, even though he's the leader of a ninja group called the Foot, uh, which was uh, a ta- uh, like a parody take on the Hand um, from Marvel Comics, the ninja group from Marvel Comics. Okay. We yeah, I was saw them in the most recent season of uh, of Daredevil. Right. Yes, and I was trying to figure out the the name because it's such a stupid name. Um, and so I was what, doing the foot. <laughs> yes, it's great. <laughs> what are you oh talking about? God, it's not so stupid. Up. It's great. And so I was, I was looking it up, and I guess in the comics, um, the origin of the clan is in feudal Japan, and it's originated by uh, Sato and Oshi. And due to some time travel stuff, they learn ninjutsu from Raphael, and then make the clan 
after Raphael leaves and goes back to the present timeline. And Oshi says something like, in time, others will join us and we will become a force to be reckoned with. So just as every journey begins with a single step, we shall call ourselves the foot. It's fine. They sell it. It works. That Right? I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. You're welcome to be okay with it. All right. It's um, still an evil clan called the foot. If, um, I mean, if I called my evil clan the ear. <laughs> <laughs> they justify it, though. They justify it, though. I I'm sure I could justify the ear with enough talking around it. Because we are always listening. Right. And we can hear everything. And we are sitting in the shadows waiting to strike. Yeah, you can justify anything. Information that we have listened to with our ear. The eyebrow. <laughs> We are very snarky and we'll raise ourselves up and down when you say something stupid because we are the eye. We protect your eyeball. (laughs) From random debris. But not as well as the eyelash. Uh, Anyway. um, If there is one glaring flaw in this movie, and I do want to get this across. If there's one glaring flaw in this movie, I think it's that it's a martial arts movie with very little action. I think you are only saying that because 26 years after this movie, everything is so action-packed, it is just insane. You're Well, you're right about that. You're right about everything being, you know, incredibly fast-paced, and there's always an action beat, and there's a formula to every to everything where it's like, you gotta hit an action beat every 10 minutes. Every 10 yeah. minutes, you gotta have an action beat. And in this movie, the action, not only are the action beats not overly flowery and not overly complicated but they're few and far between like there are a couple of set pieces and admittedly they're pretty small scale I would Mm -hmm. say the biggest set piece is probably the one where uh, the the antique store is burning down and they're fighting inside the inside the right the one we're about to have right and the um, and the final battles not all that it's not all that big. It's not all that grandiose or anything. It's, no, it's, it's over really fast. It's very simple and over very, very quickly. Um, and I don't know. I said a flaw. I don't know if I would call it a flaw because I feel like what this movie lacks in action, it kind of makes up for in drama. Like we just saw okay, a yes. scene right there, a blowout between Raphael and, and uh, Leonardo, um, who is the ostensible leader of the Ninja Turtles, who's kind of the, the uh, I don't know, goody two-shoes, I guess, of the group. He's kind mm-hmm. of always been framed that way. Um, and they kind of have this blowout. And, and you know, we've got these dynamics between these characters that are important. Like, they're all distinct. And I feel like Raphael, of course gets to be the main character of this movie and most of the Ninja Turtles movie because he's kind of the Wolverine of these movies. The most of the, most of all of the Ninja Turtles movies, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's just because he's that kind of dark and conflicted uh, you know, anti-hero. Right, everyone likes the tortured anti-hero. Right, exactly. He's tortured and he's complicated and he's moody and all this kind of stuff, so it's easy to kind of make him the emotional center of the movie. Right. Um, but I think that they do a really smart thing uh, in what is kind of um, the low point for these characters, the low point in this in this journey, so to speak. Uh, they take Raphael out of it. Like, he is the emotional yeah. center of the movie, and then they take him out of commission for a while, and you let to, these other characters kind of get to breathe and form relationships with, with yeah. each other. Which and I th- with other characters. And with other characters, which is really smart writing. Mm-hmm. 
for for making an ensemble film work. Right. And I think that this, as an ensemble film, it absolutely works. By the end of this movie, you you understand all of these characters. And not just the Turtles, and not just April, and not just Casey Jones, but like ancillary non-canon characters like like Danny. Danny. Mm -hmm. Like Danny is a great counterpart to the Raphael character. Yeah. uh, Who is kind of... You know, he's conflicted and tortured a little bit and goes off and makes bad choices. And and also we're talking about father issues. Right. We're talking. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like there's a lot of really good stuff to chew on in this movie. And it's not just cut and dry. It's not formulaic. It is. It is. It's more than that. It's thoughtful. Yeah. No, I think so, too. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a thoughtful I film. Didn't, I mean, when when we revisited this while we were living in Japan a couple of years ago, um, I don't remember how long ago. It must have been like two or three years ago. And we revisited this movie. And I remember going into it thinking, oh, it's going to be it's going to be a dumb movie. It's going to be funny. It's not going to be what we remember from from our childhood. And then I remember watching it and being kind of like, wow, that was way better than I expected it to be like as a film. Our our poo pals over at the In Session Film Podcast, when we we announced that we were going to do this, said be kind to this film. And I I hope they're happy because I'm I'm, I feel like we're going to be very kind to this movie we already have been it's not a, it's not a movie without problems obviously but this is a yeah it's of a course really good i mean movie. the the bad guys are called the foot but that's not a it's <laughs> not a problem with the movie that's a problem with the canon of this story well i mean but if it's supposed to be a parody then fine whatever it's a parody so so i i get it i don't need like geek bashing to be like why they call it the foot i get why they call it the foot um it, it still sounds stupid whether or not if you say so it's definitely dumber than the hand and the hands already not really great so well they sound like ninja groups and in, in comic books so either which way pick an extremity the penis <laughs> no that would, that would be, be my ninja group that would be a pretty fantastic i'm ninja a member group. of the penis fear us uh, like this little, uh, I feel like this is kind of a nod to Bruce Lee, uh, this showing off with the, uh, the nunchuck scene, um, which is pretty great. I, I like how the, the, the poor foot clan ninja is forced to do his routine without like a, like a, a jazz drum kit, like going behind him. So it really, ju- you could just hear him going, huh. Huh, huh. And just the slapping of the nunchuck. And then, of course, when Michelangelo does it, there's like this jazz drum shit going on. And it's it's pretty great. Um, this music right here, I, I don't know if I like it or not. The music in this part of the, the movie where uh, Raphael has been knocked out of commission and, and thrown through the roof um, of April's apartment... The turtles are fighting, and it's very, like, carnival-esque. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It is kind of carnival-y. For the most part, though, I like the I like the score in this. It's fine. Um, I wanted I wanted to say, in the scene where, where he was doing the nunchuck stuff, it makes me think of the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene with, uh, oh, with yeah. Indiana Jones, yeah, where, yeah. where the swordsman's doing all his tricks, and, and then, you know, Indy just shoots him. A similar kind of scene. Which is one of two of my favorite Harrison Ford uh, 
improv scenes. I guess they're both kind of improv. That sure. one was, I think, less improv and more planned because he was sick on set when yeah. he did that one. Uh, he was eating food in Tunisia that everyone else brought, like, cans of SpaghettiOs, and he ate native food, and, yeah. then, and then he was sick. Because he was on vacation. Right. <laughs> and then he couldn't shoot for more than, like, 10 minutes without puking. So when they did the scene, the poor guy, though, the poor swordsman, because he, like, he was looking forward to, he trained and trained for that part, yeah. and then and then Harrison, oh, like... Come, I mean, but he's... He's a part of a much better scene in film history now. No, no, I agree. But poor guy, he wanted to show off. Oh, wow. Well. Um, and then, and then, of course, the second Harrison Ford improv being the I know. Of course. Of um, course. Um, there is a there is a, a pretty good Harrison Ford reference in this movie when oh there is when, that's right it's totally I'm totally not out of context for mentioning exactly uh, when April gets taken uh, by Raphael after she's attacked in the train station and she uh, wakes up in the turtle lair uh, she of course freaks out and and uh, she says she's having a dream because there's giant turtles and a giant talking rat and all this stuff and and as she settles back down to hear the story of the turtles origin she's like why can't can't I, I ever dr- dream of Harrison Ford? Yeah, it's a good line. It's good. Um, lots of good little lines like that, like we said, that fly under the radar. Casey Jones calls uh, calls these punks uh, early in the film that he beats up uh, JV lowlives. <laughs> just, just junior varsity lowlives, it's good. It's just like not full-fledged varsity lowlives yet. Not not even like like college ball low lives, not professional, just JV low lives. Well, he also has to have like sports references and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. So like when he pulls out the golf club and everything at the end of the movie and makes some jokes about that. Never, when he yeah. I never it. called golf a dull sport again. And, uh, yeah. well, yeah, the stuff he says about like he takes out a cricket bat and oh right, and then he when he hits, I had a note about that. He hits uh, Raphael, Raphael yeah. into the trash can. You got to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. Says I think Raphael. Raphael says that. Um, and then he hits him. Casey hits him into the trash can and says six runs, which apparently six runs are scored when a baseman, a bat, a batsman, a batsman, a batsman <laughs> hits the bowler's ball. <laughs> a batsman hits a ball over the boundary in the air. I definitely know a lot about cricket. Now, here's here's the thing that that makes me kind of like the carnival-esque music at the start of this scene is as soon as uh, one of the foot uh, ignites the fire... It gets serious. It gets serious, which the contrast immediately creates yes. this dramatic shift where you're like, okay, shit's getting serious. And had it been serious fight music from the start, I don't then feel this like... this wouldn't have had the same exactly, impact. Exactly. The dramatic shift wouldn't be as strong. So right. I, 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 that's what... Ma- it keeps me from thinking that it's a bad musical choice. Um, but yeah, this this scene does get really dark and dire pretty fucking fast. Well, and I mean, it's pretty dark for multiple reasons. Like, it's dark because her... Okay, so not only did things get serious physically, but things got serious. Raphael's in, in serious trouble. Um, he's hurt. April gets fired. Um, yeah. So she loses... Let's take it off. Her job, her family home, the antique shop she kept alive because she missed her dead daddy. <sighs> Fuck, right? I mean, April, and look at her. Like, she's looking out the back window with the reflection of the burning shop in the van, in the window of the van, and she has lost everything. For these turtles. 
for these fucking turtles. Now, we didn't mention anything about the fight scene or the choreography or anything like that. I feel like the choreography in this movie is great. It's a fucking, like, even as little of it as there is, this is a martial arts movie that has good martial arts choreography in it. And shockingly, shockingly, you see these guys in these suits, these cumbersome, big, heavy, gotta be hot suits, and you don't expect them to be able to move the way they move. Oh, right. The mobility that they have is in these suits. astonishing. It's crazy. And to this day, I watched that, especially like the rooftop fight scene where it's in broad daylight. They're not trying to hide shit in darkness mm-hmm. and shadows and rain. There's no rain in this fucking movie. There's no rain. There, that was, that's, what, that's the movie go-to if you want to hide your bad makeup, if you want to hide your bad CG, if you want to hide your bad costumes or choreography, you do quick cutting and you hide it in rain and in dark and shit like that. Fuck that. Broad daylight on a fucking rooftop and Raphael is kicking ass. Yeah. It's a it's great. Rolling around, jumping in the air, doing flips and shit. It's really fantastic. It's just a really fantastic showcase for what the Jim Henson uh, creature company, creature shop, I think is what it was right. called in London, uh, was able to accomplish, even if he didn't like this movie after it came out. Jim Henson was pretty vocal about not having liked how much violence was in this movie. Speaking of violence, this scene right here where a character named the we just know by name Shinsho Shinso I think they said his name was um, in the script and in the novelization Master Tatsu after failing to catch the Ninja Turtles actually kills him in that scene and in the French version okay. of the movie they don't have any of the voiceover that says oh he's fine he's alive he's still breathing nice he actually dies he should I like <laughs> yeah, it yeah it's it's pretty brutal it. right? it's dark I mean there is there is some dark stuff in this I mean look it's it's Splinter being chained up to the wall and stuff for yeah. most of this movie yeah. and rags looking beat up it's dark it's nice it is um, and the production design on this is just fantastic there's some oh, really yeah. really fantastic work um, look at those rat hands I love those rat hands <laughs> I love them rat hands <laughs> splinter caress me and hold me close with your rat hands I love them they're so wrinkly um, but anyways yeah I mean we go there in this movie like I said she loses her family home she loses her antique shop which she kept alive because of her dead dad um Loses her job. Raphael is seriously injured. They're, they're being serious about bringing it kind of dark. And they're about to bring in a reference, too, a literary reference in the next scene that's equally dark and fucked up. So so we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, so now we're getting into probably, strangely enough, for me, probably the most memorable part of this movie from my childhood the thing that I remember the most about this movie when I remember this movie is that there's a whole section of this that takes place at April's family farm like Mm. this abandoned farmhouse and it's a good little you know 15-20 minutes of the movie I would like this farmhouse where they are at their lowest point like in you know within story structure if you want to dissect the story this is these characters lowest point they're in exile They've run away because they have nowhere else to go. And this is a chance for them to kind of regroup and reform and build themselves back up to a place where they're ready to take on the the threat in the third act Um, or the final act. Watch Casey. So they're about to have a little tiff right here. And then they're both going to storm off into bedrooms and slam the door. How does Casey know where to go? 
This is the first time he walks into this building. Just watch this scene now and pretend that when he walks through that door, he's walking into a closet. And then it'll be funny. (laughs) And it totally absolves this of any logic sins. That would be funny if he walked. It would be funny if he immediately walked out of the room after after he walked into it. Okay, so do you have something right now? Because well, yeah, I just wanted to continue about like this this portion of the movie. See, it's closet. Like this part of the movie is visually totally different. It's tonally completely different from the rest of the film. It feels like kind of like Ninja Turtles by way of Terrence Malick or something like that. I think it it really, really sets the movie apart and proves that this is a thoughtful film as we are claiming it to be. Uh, And it's it is trying to be more than it easily could have been, you know, Uh, and that is saying nothing about this terrible voiceover from April that we're getting as she's drawing the turtles. When I hear stuff like this, I'm like, okay, now just imagine these scenes without her unnecessary voiceover and how much more quiet and thoughtful and evocative. I hate hate the narration in these scenes. Yes, because it's not, it's not evocative. It's literal. It's, you're, you're not allowing for any subtext. You're just making it all text. There's no other point in the movie where she's uh, a narrator of the story, only right. during this part. She's not the main character of the movie. Right. The main character, if there is one, is out of commission If right anyone now. could get away with having a random, un- unprecedented voiceover narration of the events going on, it would be Raphael. Or Splinter. Or Splinter. Telling the story in hindsight. Something like that. Some kind of... some. You know, some trope like that. Not April. Not April. Yeah, that's so. That's um, that's a problem for me. But you know, other than that, I mean, this is this is my favorite part of the movie. It's it feels like the most uh, emotionally resonant, and it, there's the most character development happens in this part of the movie. And this and this moment right here is really good with um, where we've got Leonardo and and I mean things mean something in this movie. So. So earlier, right before Raphael left the building, Leonardo said he didn't need him or something like that. We don't need we you. We don't need you. Um, and so and so here we are, and Raphael is injured and in the bathtub, which is so fantastic. It is fantastic and kind weird. of weird and kind, like it makes sense because he's a turtle, so they're trying uh-huh. to keep him wet. Um, kind of goes with an earlier scene where they were sleeping. They're sleeping and they sleep like on their stomachs, like on their shells, like curled, curled up. up. So mm-hmm. when they wake up, when April walks through the room, they all kind of they all sit up in the same way. It's mm-hmm. really strange. Little details like that that I feel like are are really important and make this kind of extra special. Um, so so Leonardo says they don't need him. And then, of course, while he's injured, he's the one who's going to be sitting there watching him. It's just nothing like nothing slips by this movie and yeah. gets away without being without without coming back around and being tied up. Yeah. Raphael or Leonardo says something mean to Raphael and it comes back and we have characterization because of it. We see Leonardo becoming more of a leader, taking taking more resp- feeling responsible for his brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, we just like when Danny steals the, the money out of her out of her pocket or out of her wallet. Um, at the like I totally forgot about it and then at the end of the movie he gives it back to her and you're like oh that's the writers remembering what they wrote and fixing the problem yeah. that they created yeah. whether or not it was big enough for me to care about it was something that they made sure to tie up at the end they just do a good job of that 
Um, there, we did miss a little scene where uh, Casey Jones and and Donatello were kind of getting along as they were trying to fix the truck, and you know they're kind of insulting each other with really dumb insults, and I, you know. Watching it for the first time in years, I didn't remember what they were doing exactly until Casey's like, what letter are we on? And then you realize they're insulting each other following like alphabetically following letters of the alphabet, which makes something that I feel like didn't work when I first started watching that scene and makes it something cute and that works. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's like the movie's one step ahead of me. And I'm like, okay, well, all is forgiven. Okay. So you ready for the lit reference? Okay. Go. There are two of them almost back to back because we're about to get the second one. All right. So the first one was when they show up at the farmhouse, um, they say, I think it's Casey who says, didn't they use this place in the Grapes of Wrath? Oh, yeah. Um, So I'm guessing, I'm guessing they mean the movie, right? Isn't there a movie? Yes. Grapes of Wrath? I've never seen it, but I've read the book. the second literary reference is to Moonlighting, right? No? Okay. Um, no. Uh, and and so Grapes of Wrath, of course, is the 1939 John Steinbeck novel, American Realist novel. The thing that's weird, is, and I almost want to say they're making, I, maybe I'm stretching it, but maybe they're making some kind of point. Both of the novels they reference, I'll give it away, the second one's War and Peace. Um, but both of the novels they reference are realis, realist novels. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that can't be a coincidence, right? That they choose both of the only two novels that they reference are realist novels. Yeah. Right. I don't. I mean, yes, yes, that is interesting and perhaps a coincidence. But both novels are considered classics too. Like, yes, they are classics. But I mean, you can find a lot of classics that aren't realist novels. That's true. Um, but anyway, so if you don't know a lot about the Grapes of Wrath, the reason why it's weird. I mean, obviously, it is a classic novel, and it's one that probably most people are going to recognize the name. It won the it won the uh, uh, the National Book Award and the Pulitzer, um, and of course, Steinbeck got a Nobel Prize in '62, and the novel was mentioned repeatedly when he got the prize. Um, it's a Great Depression novel. It's very, very depressing. Have you ever read *Grapes of Wrath*? Nope. It's really depressing. It's Oklahoma farmers in the Dust Bowl ruin crops, um, and they travel for work on Route 66 to California, where they they are exploited as laborers, and the end of the book has a stillborn baby and a flood, and the mother of the stillborn baby feeding a starving man with her breast milk. So just like Ninja Turtles. It's an odd reference, right? I love this scene right here. The scene starts with... Casey Jones chopping vegetables with Leo's sword, which I think is fucking hilarious. Visually hilarious. Yes, yeah. And then he sits April down to start massaging her shoulders, and they are wet with sweat, and it's obviously hot. Hot. She's wearing a tank top, and she doesn't have a bra. No bra. And it's like the most sexual thing that my little four-year-old eyeballs had ever seen. (laughs) That was like, besides, and I've mentioned this on the show before, besides Linnea Quigley in Return of the Living Dead, this was probably the second great sexual awakening of my youth (laughs) was that scene right there where Casey Jones massages uh, Well, you know, while he's massaging her, she's like, she is a petite woman and she's small and she's got small boobs and her boobs are pretty close to her shoulders because her whole body's just really small. Compact, and yeah. so And so as he's massaging her, like, his fingers are pretty close to the nips, just <laughs> massaging, right? And and when he kind of pulls up on her skin, her boobs kind of move up, 
right? It's, it is. It's very sensual. Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, oh, I think they just did the War and Peace reference. They did. They did. Uh, speaking of April, uh, Robin Williams was a huge fan of the Ninja Turtles comics specifically. And uh, when he and Judith Hogue, who plays April, uh, were working on Cadillac Man uh, just before she started making this movie, or maybe while she was making this movie, it could have been concurrent, uh, he, he actually helped her with her character by using his knowledge of the comic books. Oh, that's cool. So that that's pretty neat. Robin Williams was a famed nerd. Yeah. He was I didn't learn that till I was much older. Oh yeah. Like way into way, video when he started games I think I I learned it when like I don't remember what handheld console it was out, but there was some handheld console where uh, like his daughter DS. was was probably playing. The, yeah, probably DS commercials. And they were they were advertising like a maybe the Legend of Zelda. Zelda, yeah. Phantom Hourglass, maybe, yeah, maybe. the first DS Zelda, I think. And I remember uh, he was in those commercials with his daughter, and I was always and it surprised me. So look at this weird ass shit that's going Super on. Super right weird. Now. So they've got this this a meditation scene where they're gathered gathered around the fire and they contact Splinter, whose spirit levitates over these blue flames and you know, you know, gives them encouragement to band together as brothers and accomplish the impossible and come rescue him and you know defeat the foot and all this kind of stuff. But you get to the end of this scene and the turtles are fucking crying. Oh, yeah. Like big turtle tears. This movie is, I mean, this is such a weird movie that it take, that takes itself so seriously. And I, I just have a huge amount of respect for that. Like how seriously it takes itself without being like too serious. You know what I mean? Without, without understanding that it is a silly premise but look at michelangelo look at the turtles crying fucking crying tears down their green faces um so in and a bit star warsy feeling right with like the ghost father figure and sure, stuff very obi-wan kind and, of thing yeah. and definitely that i i would maybe be less inclined to say that if we didn't have the shredder costume which as you said was inspired by darth vader oh yeah um so the shredder costume which is inspired by darth vader and shredder says the line i am your father yeah in like the mask voice. yeah 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 definitely so so we've got two in there that are pretty pretty close and then some Harrison Ford references or potential references yeah there's some Star right, Wars love some, in this movie yeah I think so it's it's not super obvious but I think it's definitely there yeah um, did you know that in the in the comic books and in the cartoons the turtles were only supposed to be like three or four feet tall like they're little they're little dudes three or four feet tall in, in the, the comics books. and the cartoons yeah that would be adorable can we please do can we that please would, re when when we did the reboot could we please have done it like uh, that, that instead i'm sorry that that shot right there of casey jones truck pulling up oh there is rain in this movie but it's not used to conceal any costume or or digital effects it's yeah we've just already rain. seen him and it looks good on the on the slick turtle costumes oh too. yeah definitely uh but yeah jay gregory from facebook of sad spaceman promotions actually uh, identified this movie from that very obscure screenshot uh, and he wants to promote the Nashville Industry Music Awards that are happening on August 23rd at 3rd and Lindsley downtown Nashville uh, please visit NIMA Digital N-I-M-A Digital for more details and congratulations and a good job to you on guessing that very very obscure screenshot from this movie uh, moving on what are we 
what are we watching now? So the turtles have come back to their lair after being in exile at the farmhouse for some time. Uh, I did have a note here that I wanted to, uh, to mention. I'm trying to find it again. Um, Oh, yeah. Ernie Reyes Jr. uh, is a martial artist who was brought on to replace an injured Hong Kong stuntman who was originally the Donatello body actor. And then uh, then Ernie Reyes Jr. ended up going on to play. uh, I can't remember the character's name, but he's the 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 main human character in Ninja Turtles 2, the pizza delivery boy that knows martial arts. Yeah. So he's in that movie as a human and not as a turtle. But yeah, he's inside the the Donatello costume because they lost that actor early on to an injury. Um, And David Foreman, who plays Leonardo, uh, actually will play Leonardo again in 1991, in the 1991 film Bernard and the Genie, uh, where there's a little doll, a Leonardo doll that belongs to a boy, and it magically comes to life and like demonstrates some martial arts fighting skills, and that's David Foreman reprising the role of Leonardo. What is this called? It's called Bernard and the Genie. What is that? It's a movie. <laughs> Is it a live action it's, movie? Yeah, it's a movie with, oh, who's in it? Alan Cumming is in it. Um, fuck, you put me on the spot. I know Alan Cumming. I've in never America. heard of this before. Yeah, it's supposed to, I've never seen it either, but it's supposed to be really good. Okay. I've heard that it's good, but yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely like to see that. If only for his reprisal of the Leonardo role that he made so famous. And of course, uh, we've got the the pizza moment here, which is pretty funny. Where where they're looking for pizza? <laughs> That's a good line. Do you like penicillin on your pizza? Because it's, it's old. Because it's old and moldy, and they sing taps. Moldy it's cute. Uh, there is almost a good joke in this scene. Almost, and it's where Casey Jones is freaking out. I think they turn it into a good joke, but Casey Jones is freaking out about having to sleep in the sewer, and Donatello says, "You're claustrophobic," and Casey you're Jones, a claustrophobic. "You're a claustrophobic," and he says, "I've never even looked at another guy before." You want a fist in the mouth? I've never even looked at another guy before it's almost a good joke but i don't know if the word homophobic was as as commonly used a word back in back then but now the obvious joke is i have tons of gay friends right <laughs> that's the joke is if you're gonna make it yeah, true true that is the joke now if he if he if, he, if he, he's dumb enough to not know what claustrophobic is at least make him know a word that's similar. but i don't i don't think back then i think back then it would have been the joke of i'm not gay right so. yeah yeah that's right but today it's i, I have i have tons of gay friends yeah. i just imagine that that's the joke and all is forgiven um Oh, the turtles aren't sleeping on their stomachs in this scene, oh, which is kind of weird. I, and I totally, I totally missed the the moment where. So Danny um, isn't Danny. Oh no, it's Denny, right? <laughs> From the room. From the room. Yeah, and I can't. I mean, Danny or Denny in any incarnation of that, I'm never gonna hear as someone's son and not think of that movie. Three's a crowd. Um, <laughs> oh, are you going to talk about the artwork that he takes yes, from April? Yes, so oh my God, what Danny, she's got some artwork that she's drawn of the turtles, and it's fine. It would have been yeah, it would have been much better if we some, hadn't had a voiceover yeah, while she some, was drawing it. Some good fan art. 
Um, and and she's got some drawings of the turtles. And the kid is like, hey, can I have one of those? Those are really great. And she's like, yeah, I guess so. Go ahead. And so he takes one of her unfinished drawings and he folds it up. Like stuffs it into his pocket. And stuffs it in his pocket. <laughs> awful. What kind of asshole does that? That's uh, that's pretty funny, though. Um but yeah, so we're we're back in the in the layer of the bad children smoking and drinking and skateboarding, as one does. Uh, Casey Jones has followed Danny uh, in the night to to this place, which is a again another good example of like writing that kind of is self propellant, right? Uh, because you know we've got we we set up we establish that Casey Jones is claustrophobic, mm-hmm. so he wants to go sleep in the truck. He goes to the truck and rolls down the window because he is actually claustrophobic. Um, but maybe and then he sees Danny and he sees Danny get out of the sewer and follows him. And right, yeah. this is called this is things coming back. Dialogue and relationships actually meaning something. Characters being driven by goals and changing along the way. This is called writing. Yep. Writing. It's this, it's this um, weird little thing that you need to have. When you make a movie. Yeah. Or write a book. You also should oh have God. it if you write a book. <laughs> Look at that little... The, when, when Splinter's telling his origin story... Uh, oh which is God. also shot on Super 8 and looks old and weird. I love the little the little rat. The little rat kicking and punching is silly as fuck. It is adorable. <laughs> it is super silly. And I want it. Okay, so now we learn that the the rivalry between Splinter's master Yoshi and Oroku Saki, which is by the way a silly ass Japanese name, trust me. Um the the source of their rivalry was that they were fighting for the love of a Chinese woman named Tang Shin or Tang Shen. Yeah. So I did some research because I was trying to figure it out. Um, the internet says she's supposed to be a Japanese woman with a Chinese grandfather. Okay, so she's. But I still don't understand why she would have that name then. Yeah, patern. Well, if she's paternally Chinese, then the name would be passed to her, I guess. Well, traditional. Her grandfather. It would depend on Whose whether it was his her, son yeah, I mean, or her, or her. Well, I think we can. Daughter. I think we can infer that it was. Okay, but that doesn't explain her first name. And and even if it does, it's still she looks very traditionally Japanese. Um, and and I'm talking, of course, about her kimono and yes. stuff that she's wearing. Yes. And her hairstyle and her makeup and all of that. It's just, I mean, okay, speaking as delicately as possible about Chinese and Japanese relations, this is not the most likely of origin <laughs> stories. Especially about if when you're talking about two men who practice traditional martial arts and probably live very traditional lifestyles because of that. Because one tends to follow the other. You know, I knew some martial artists when we lived in Japan and they lived very traditionally to I mean there, that's there's no right, other way yeah, to put it yeah um so yeah it, it does of course for, for speaking as delicately as one can I do agree I find it unlikely right unlikely for it not to be mentioned or it to be part of the story or anything right part of their characterization right. or something like that right, right? To, to me it just simp- it simply seems like uh 
white people wrote a comic book about Asian people. And they just thought, oh, Asian's Asian. (laughs) Just mix them all. It's fine. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, that's how it felt. And also, you know, I mean, just to have a woman with a Chinese name and stuff being in traditional Japanese clothing it and that's fine when you go and you look at the background and you figure everything out but like they don't explain that background in this movie and it comes across as just being like well that Tang Shen must also be a Japanese name yeah. and you're like well actually, uh, not really, actually well I you know Shredder spoiler Shredder's real name is Orokusaki and that that was he is the man who killed uh, Tang Shen and uh, Master Yoshi Splinter's master um, Hamato Yoshi um, and I, I assume he later in the movie Splinter calls his master by his full name Hamato Yoshi, which uh, Yoshi being a f- the first name of a person, um, Hamato being the family name. He should I, be calling him Master Hamato. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yes. Perhaps. Uh, but that also implies that. Uh, Shredder's family name is Oroku, which is not a Japanese family name. And Saki, which is a Jap- Japanese uh, given name, I've never met a, a man named Saki. Yeah, also true. So that's again, just something to chew Again, uh, sounds like... I mean, Oroku sounds like a Japanese name because it's made up of those syllables. I was talking right, about yeah. the, the syllabic language before. It's made up of those... Japanese syllables, and sure, you can spell it in katakana. Right, yeah, you can write it out in katakana or, or hiragana. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, um, but, but anyways, yeah, it does sound kind of like stuff that uh, people who maybe don't know that much about Japan, Japan <laughs> might, might maybe make. That's that's okay. Or Asia. Yeah, uh, whatever. Let's see. This scene right here, so there we're about to have a little action scene, a little cross-cutting action scene. Um, we've got Splinter's rescue here uh, with Casey Jones and Danny, uh, cross-cut with the turtles fighting uh, the Foot Clan in their lair. And I think this part of the movie is really a really spectacular example and kind of exemplifies how the movie balances its silly and serious sides. Because you're kind of cutting back and forth between the turtles having fun beating up. There's zero stakes in the turtles beating up those ninjas they're having fun um so the turtles are beating up ninja and um and then splinter's rescue which is notably more dramatic and dark and has stakes um which you know still has a fair amount of levity thanks to casey jones and and i like i like the look casey jones gave when when he went in and he found splinter and he saw him for the first time and he kind of looks like whoa yeah. giant rat. and then he's just like okay and he just shrugs well he, he had I, I like that he has the moment where yeah. he's just no, like it's, it's appreciated where he's like i haven't seen a giant rat before but i have seen giant turtles and i'm okay with it All okay right, we're gonna on. move on <laughs> okay and it's, I don't know, it's the nature of the shrug. It's the look of it. I like that that they give this moment to him, too. Yeah, yeah. That they give this, this I, I don't know if it's supposed to be a kill or not, but this takedown. Yeah, it's it's good. I think, I, I do believe that uh, Elias Coteus is MVP of this film. I think he delivers okay. the best performance. Um, I don't know. He's just great. He's great in everything, but he's really, really excellent in this movie. I love his character. I love his attitude. He he takes lines that any other actor would take, and he makes him look, like I said, effortless. Mm-hmm. He's an effortless actor, and I really appreciate that about him and all of his performances, but especially this one. Uh, so, yeah, he's about to take out... Um, 
uh, Master Tatsu. Is that his name? I think they, they, I think they pronounce his name Tetsu in this movie, but he's definitely credited as Tatsu. Um, and so after, you know, he's about to make his golf joke and, and after all of this, like we've, well, during this, we've got our Danny characterization, right? We've got his arc going on here. Um, which, which kind of parallels some of the other, the other characters in the story, of course, because you were, okay, this is something we haven't talked about. Um, this movie has skateboarding. It has hockey. Uh-huh. Um, this feels like a 90s movie to me, which on, on surface level, you're going to say, well, it's 1990. But as we've said many times on the podcast, um, we both pretty much believe that movies are the decade before for the first like two or three years yeah. of the decade. Um, so 1990 is still typically an 80s movie, I think. But like in the in the tone in the way they feel this movie to me feels like the 90s i feel like this is going to be a weird thing to say i feel like this movie is maybe it maybe feels exactly when it came out like no maybe no other movie that i've seen before it feels like this movie came out in... Is the, tr- is the transition between 80s to 90s? It, it is absolutely a movie that takes place and was released in 1990. I get what you're saying. Because, I guess... Because I agree. I don't think it fe- It doesn't feel like an 80s movie. Hands. But it's definitely got 80s things about it. Like, I mean, fucking Danny's wearing a Sid Vicious uh, t-shirt. He wears Sid Vicious t-shirts all the way through the movie. And there's a moment in the movie where he's looking through crates and it looks like Sid Vicious is the one looking through the crates. <laughs> Yes. Um, um, but but I do, I think that this set the tone for some of the 90s movies, 90s kids movies. Oh, absolutely. Is what I'm saying. I think it was ahead of its time and that the stuff that feels 90s about this movie, I mean, I, I'm there's definitely an argument here for what feels 80s about this movie, but I think the 90s feel is overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, I think that if Batman had a strong enough influence on the movie industry to allow this movie to be made, I feel like this movie uh, kind of tempered that influence and brought it in a different direction. I feel like this had had as much of an influence on Hollywood uh, movie making as and not Batman just movie did. making, but like Holly, uh, like kids TV shows and stuff. The way, like their their comebacks and their their catchphrases and all of that. I mean, the '90s was just overloaded with them, just yeah. constantly in kids movies and in in kids TV shows. So, so I don't know. I mean, not that they haven't in other decades too, but I feel like this is a unique example of a thing that's like, is this an eighties movie or is this a nineties movie? It's neither. It is a 1990 movie and it, it feels and looks and is exactly when it takes place. Exactly when it came out. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's special in that way. One of the things we talked about at the very beginning of the show and then we didn't ever actually talk about it was, and we're about to be at the end of the movie, was April's reporting. Oh, yeah. You started to talk about it and then we never actually said anything. Where she says stuff like, um, what what is it? Instead of getting better, things have actually gotten worse. (laughs) Okay, great reporting. Good job. A plus reporting. Pulitzer. Also, also the stuff she's reporting about, like this huge crime wave the, that's so big it has a name, the silent crime wave, and things they're doing uh, are purse snatching and breaking and entering and <laughs> stealing Walkmans. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here 
uh, thinking you as know, a court reporter, as as a court reporter, and as some as the person, uh, one of the people, but the main person who goes through the jail list every day and writes those articles about um, about who's been arrested and what it was for. Um, yeah, if I was writing about purse snatching. Well, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. I don't write those stories. And, so. you, and you write stories about crime in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and this is in New York, New York. Oh, right. Yeah. Mo- most of the time I'm like, oh, yes, a 13 year old was raped. We should probably cover that story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are shootings like every week. Yeah. So unfortunately, you're not uh, exaggerating there. No, no, not at all. Actually, that's a real story from not that long ago. Wow. Um, um yeah, so so uh, in this last scene, uh, before we wrap up, just talking about the writing, the dialogue writing a little bit more, because um, it, you know, balance the bad with the good. The reporting scenes are a little weird. Uh, April is needlessly snarky, needlessly snarky with people and is really sarcastic. She's, oh, in, the, in she, her reporting and stuff? She is the least professional reporter I've ever seen in my life. Uh, but the turtles... They tell these lame jokes and they say these really lame things. And I think that it makes it okay. The thing that makes it okay, rather, is that they recognize that they're lame jokes and they laugh at each other when they make them. Yes, no, I agree. They're not for the audience to laugh at. They're for their brothers to laugh at. And they do. These aren't these aren't one-liners for the audience. They're for each other. Well, and, and like they them. judge them. This one's suffering from shell shock. Too derivative. Yeah, they even make a joke about right? that. Right? Like, yeah. yeah, they, they, that's nice. Um, also, so going back one more comment about April's reporting um, she does things like like pick on the DA and the or pick on the chief of police and and I'm sitting here thinking to myself how like my goal every day is that when I write articles that include things about the chief of police and the DA and people like that or the mayor that I try my damnedest (laughs) not to piss them off because you're gonna have to go back (laughs) in the courtroom the next day right and they're they're still gonna be there um and and so like she's actively pissing off the chief of police and and the moment when it comes around and I'm like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have. And I know she's going to, at the end of the movie, she's the one who's right. And she knew about the crimes all along. And it was her reporting her good skills that saved it, whatever. But, but there's a moment in the movie where they're looking for Splinter. Remember? And she's like, I'll let you guys know if anyone calls into the station and gives us tips about what's happening. A lot more people call into the police station than they do the news station. Yeah. And maybe if you were on better terms with the chief of police, who as a reporter you could be on good terms with. Yes. That would have been something you could have used to your... I'm just letting you know, April. But instead... Choices she, she, that you make. Instead, she chooses to be a snarky shit. When, when, you, when you're working with people like that every day... You have an option. Um, I wanted to say something about the way the turtles fight Shredder in this last scene here. I guess all ninjas study from the same textbook that teaches them to attack one at a time, just like the turtles do with Shredder here at the end. I thought and every, for sure. Every ninja group of ninja in every ninja movie ever, it seems, just like attacks the hero one at a time and allows themselves to be taken out. I thought for sure we were going to come to the end of that scene. I hadn't seen this in a while. And I thought for sure we were going to come to the end of it and Splinter was going to be like, you must fight together as a team or right, something like that. Right. And then they were going to be like, oh. Yeah, they kind of drop the ball on that little 
even though yeah. it is kind of shitty to gang up on somebody. <laughs> it is, but Shredder's but, a bad guy. <laughs> right, right. Although, but I thought I we were going to get like a, you are stronger together than But you if you alone. think about what Shredder's doing, like, yes, he's corrupting youth, but no one's died in this movie. He hasn't killed anyone besides, of course, you know, Master Yoshi and uh, Tang Shen, Tang Shen. Uh, as far as we know, in this movie, his worst crime is telling teenagers to steal Walkmans and TVs and shit. True. True. And uh, and in this last moment right here, he, uh, Splinter lets him fall into a garbage well, truck. He lets him fall to save himself. It's Shredder's own fault for trying to attack. Um, but the thing that happens now is right. that Casey Jones comes along and says, oops, and crushes Shredder to death. Right, yeah. Casey Jones is a... With the dump truck. He's a murderer. I mean, that's a horrible way to die. It's a horrible way to die, and Casey Jones was just like, oops, killed ya, just <laughs> crushed you to death, oops. Oops. Butterfingers. Yeah, he he murdered Shredder pretty, right there. It's pretty fucking brutal. Uh, but anyway. And also, what was up with that dump truck? Why were the keys in it? Why was it sitting there? Oh, I don't Who know. abandons dump I don't trucks? Know. Who cares? It's a movie. No, Shit, no, no. Gotta, shit's gotta happen. It's a movie. Where did the keys come from? Who made those keys? I'm are serious. they the originals I'm sorry. or are they I'm sorry. How keys? many dump trucks have you seen abandoned with the keys sitting in them on the side of the road? Well, maybe maybe it abandoned the the guy abandoned the dump truck when he saw the ninja coming out of the sewers. I would jump out of my car and okay. run away. Too. All right. Well, maybe not. I probably I need an establishing yeah. shot there to let me know that's what happened. Okay. Okay. So they missed one shot. Um, yeah, again, we are talking about callbacks earlier. We've got uh, Danny giving back the money we just saw that he stole from April earlier in the movie. Um, also, if I were Casey Jones right now, I would be out of like, there. Yeah, I'd run I'd be wiping down that dump truck handle and that wheel with the, oh, yeah. with the bottom of my shirt, and then I'd be gone. Yeah, I'd run up to April and be like, I just killed a man. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to run away. I'll be at the farmhouse. Just come to the farmhouse. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. What kind of uh, stray notes do I have? Oh, I did, yeah. So we got Danny's Danny's story wrapped up there. He, you know, was reunited with his dad. His dad was obviously worried about him, happy to see him again, happy that he's safe. And Danny's whole thing was, I don't want to be Danny anymore. I want to be Dan. I'm getting older. That's kind of, I don't want my, I don't want Danny, you know, our relationship as me being your child to define us. I'm, I'm becoming a young man and a, an adult. You know, that's, that's a fine wrap up for his character right there. April gets her job back. April gets her job back. She does mention uh, another reporter uh, named May who works for Channel 5, I think she says. And I think at another point in the movie, or at least in the script, they said that there was another reporter in the city by the name of June. So we've got April, May, and June, our reporters. Oh, isn't that adorable? <laughs> in, the, in the Ninja Turtles universe. And then we've got uh, we've got Sam Rockwell here saying, check out East Warehouse on Lairdman Island. And of course, uh, Kevin Eastman and um, uh, Peter Laird uh, were the creators of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic. And if you rem remember, that was one of the characters, the one who gave the police info. That was one of the ones who was questioning and talking, talking to Casey about, yeah. Jones and stuff. Yeah, at the they end They wrapped that, him up. They wrapped yeah. up this minor, like, this minor, is, minor character. Exactly. He was like, this is family, you know? And, you know, Casey Jones takes him to task court, and he's like, you call that down there family? You talk, call Master Tatsu, that's family? These guys are family? What are you talking about? And, you know, he gets his, his uh, redemption, I guess. Right. So... 
It's all wrapped and up. And this kiss is totally earned right here. Yeah, I think so too. The the Casey Jones April O'Neil kiss is a hundred percent earned, and I'm feeling it. And I think the ending is fantastic here, where they all start coming up with um, cool things to say. This is, but this is exactly how we're introduced to the turtles at the beginning of the movie. It's right. entirely cyclical. This is what they're doing at the beginning of the movie. They're thinking of cool things to say to describe what they just Gnarly. did. Gnarly, radical. And then the final line of the movie is Splinter saying, um, uh, what is it? I've always liked cowabunga. And they all freeze and start laughing. And he says, ah, I made a funny, which is also a callback to an earlier scene where April O'Neil uh, says something about a joke being Splinter's favorite. And he's not around. And they're, they're like, Splinter's favorite joke? Yeah, right. Splinter doesn't have a favorite joke. And she's like, I'm joking. Well, and I think obviously I think, he doesn't have a sense of humor. That scene you're referring to isn't because it's his favorite joke, but it's because it's the dirty, you dirty rat line. Yeah. And so she's referring to the dirty rat part. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. No, totally works. But yeah, that's a... And it's definitely a 90s movie when you end it with a slow rap song about all the things that happened in the film. Uh, Respect the rap song. This is a song called T-U-R-T-L-E Power! Exclamation point by a group called Partners in Crime, spelled K-R-Y-M-E. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I didn't write down any of the lyrics, but you should just go Brian look them Hansen up and represent. enjoy them. Uh, so, yeah, Elias Coteas, I would say, is MVP actor of the film. I would say MVP of the production as a whole, Jim Henson's Creature, Creature Shop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Really, really excellent work um, from them. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is there any, any loose stray thoughts that you have about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, before we wrap up? Any stray thoughts? Um, I like it. I think it's a fun movie. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, enjoy it. It's, I mean, it's what, it's what I want it to be. So, I don't um, know. I mean, I, I definitely, every time I go back to it, I forget how good it actually is. And then I watch it and I'm like, actually, this is a well-written, good movie. It so. is. I, I, and I think that that's its strongest. I think ton- tonally, visually, aesthetically, it looks great. It feels great. The action is great. What little there is in it. I think the drama works. I think the writing is good. I, I mean, you know, there's some weird stuff in it, some weird lines that d- haven't aged particularly well. And, you know, um, but I think... I think overall it's this song reached number 13 on the billboard hot 100 of course it did you kidding uh this was uh producer mark friedman's baby kind of uh getting this movie produced um what he wanted initially was to have this uh, be significantly different from the animated tv show um so you know when he sat down with uh, kevin eastman and peter laird um to kind of talk to them about how to develop this uh-huh. thing. Uh, his idea from the get-go was taking the comic books and saying, the story is here. This is where our story is, is in the comic books. And most of the stuff in the movie uh, comes directly out of the comic books, comes from different comics in the series. But uh, but yeah, it comes from 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 directly from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic. Um so, for example, let's see, the turtle's origin is told is the name of one. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, obviously the origin that we see shot in uh, in 
uh, eight millimeter. Uh, Me, Myself, and I is the name of a story uh, where Raphael encounters Casey Jones for the first time. What goes around comes around, which is the Foot Clan uh, critically wounding a turtle, in this case, Raphael. Silent Partner is the name of a story in which a fight in April's home between the Foot and the Turtles and Casey happens. True Stories, the, the turtles hide out in April's farm. Uh-huh. Uh, to kind of regroup that comes straight out of the comic book and return to New York the turtles finally confront the foot and the shredder all of those sections of the movie which is pretty much the whole movie come directly out of different comics in the series then from out of the dark came an awesome sound shouted cowabunga as they hit the ground from the field of weeds the heroes rescued the flower because they possessed turtle power t-u-r-t-l-e Power uh, times three T-U-R-T Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and repeat. Do you stand for what you believe in and find the strength to do what's right? That's turtle power. That's just a sampling for you. I appreciate that. Fantastic lyrics. I think that's probably going to wrap us up for this episode. That was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990, directed by Steve Barron. As always, you can find us on our website at popcornpoops.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And we have a social media presence, of course. We are on Twitter at popcornpoops, or individually, I am at Dusty Cram Cram. I am at J Casper Kramer. Like us on Facebook and also follow us on Instagram at popcornpoops. And on social media, you can uh, play our weekly movie still identification game if you correctly identify the movie from the obscure screenshot that we post, then we will mention you on the show along with anything that you would like to plug or mention. We also have a shop that you can buy from or you can donate to us by clicking the donut button, which is actually a donut now on our website. As it should be. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can also visit audibletrial.com slash popcornpoops and pick up a free audio book and that also helps to support the show. Please follow us on twitch.tv slash thepixelpoops and turn on notifications so you'll know when we go live with some live video game streaming goodness uh, and of course i just have to mention it one more time this is the last time you're going to hear it until the deadline july is hashtag poopling picks month that's listener request month as it's newly dubbed uh, so if you want to have a movie that that you your favorite movie perhaps or a movie that you think that we should cover on the show uh, please send us a voicemail uh, there's instructions on all of our social media i've been posting it like crazy you can't miss it uh, but just know that the deadline is 11:59 p.m eastern time on on Father's Day. Also call your dad. Uh, every week we like to highlight a friend of the show. Uh, this week we would hi- like to highlight a new poo pal and that is the Second Class Cinema Podcast. They're doing a lot of great work over there. Go check them out and stick around after the show for a few words from them. Next week, Jessica, yep. what are we watching? Oh, we are watching an awesome movie. Okay. I am so excited. The only thing awesome is it's runtime. I am I am so excited to let you know that we are watching Roland Emmerich's 1996 film, Independence Day. Oh, yes. In, uh, in honor of Independence Day resurgence coming out. Of course, this is hashtag Franchise Origins Month, so that, that works. And I guess that'll wrap us up for this week. So until next time, take care. Bye-bye. We are the Popcorn Poops. I'm tired of watching all these good movies. Are you tired of award-winning cinema? Sometimes I like things and sometimes I don't like them. You got a podcast for that, pal? I watch all these bad movies and I don't know what to think about them. I don't like house guests, but I do like them in other people's houses. I wish somebody understood my love for Men on Fire. Do any of these complaints sound familiar? Well, look no further than the Second Class Cinema Podcast. My doctor says laughter's the best medicine, and let me tell you, buddy, I got diseases up to here. 
successes? We've got those. Failures? We've got those too. It's everything I've wanted in a podcast. <clears throat> Second Class Cinema is the weekly podcast where we watch a B-movie and immediately discuss it. You can listen to all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SecondClassCinema.com, and FollowingFilms.com. And send us $10 in an envelope. You don't have to, but you can if you want to.